It was about 12 years ago that Judy and I decided that we needed to have a new cooker in the kitchen. Uh, the old one was gas, and it had these great chunky knobs, which uh, older people may well recall happened. And so we replaced it with an electric one, which fitted very neatly into the wall and had a little control panel, which looked like this. And you will see from this that we have two knobs and six buttons and a nice little screen. And you can set this up to uh, do various programs so that if you want to cook a joint of lamb, you can do so, and you can select a lamb joint program and so on. What you have to do is you turn the left-hand knob to... Come along, come along. You can turn the left-hand knob one click to a P, and then you turn the right-hand knob to the number of program that you wish. And if you turn the right-hand knob all the way round up to P25, this is what you find. Sabbath setting. <laughs> you can keep the oven at 85 degrees for 73 hours. You can keep meals warm without needing to switch the oven on or off. So if you wish to observe the seventh day, the Sabbath day, strictly, you can do so in such a way that you can still have something hot to eat, but you don't have to touch an electrical switch, which, of course, would be working. Well, it's easier for us to laugh at other people, but uh, also we can remember that we should also laugh at ourselves. And... Uh, I can remember meeting an old man in St. Andrews many years ago now who told me that when he was a boy, a policeman had told him off for whistling in the street on Sunday. On Sunday. Where do these strange ideas come from? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, one has to go back to the Ten Commandments to realize what was going on. Remember the Sabbath day we read in the book of Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male nor female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And the reason given is this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And this reason takes us right back to the book of Genesis, and it's there that we look at this reason. Now, we've been looking at the story of Genesis for two weeks, and this is the third, and we've all recognized that this is an account of creation that was written first for the people of that time who lived in the culture of that time, a time that is not ours and a culture that is not ours. And we don't attempt to shoehorn Genesis into the scientific culture of our own time. Now we must, if we look at these words, 
through the eyes of God's people. This is what we need to do, to look at the eye, through the eyes of people, if we can, who were living at that time, and then maybe only later look at it through our own eyes of this time. Genesis 1, chapter 1, tells us the creation story in six days. By the end of the sixth day, as Judy was reading to us, the creation is complete and God surveys the results. So in the final verse of Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And the emphasis is on the words all and very which don't appear in the first five days. The sixth day ends with the same phrase as the other five, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. And the finality of creation is also emphasized right at the beginning of chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And again, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day, he rested. Well, now, a trick question which is asked in the Sunday school by clever children to unsuspecting Sunday school teachers is, what did God do on the eighth day? But notice this. There was, e- there was no phrase, we don't find any phrase at the beginning of chapter 2 which says, There was evening and morning the seventh day. It's not there. In terms of the Genesis account, the seventh day is left open-ended. Maybe it never finishes. Maybe in some way or other we are still living in the seventh day. I wonder what that might mean. And this word rest, God rested, What does that mean? It really means that God ceased. He ceased from the work that he had been doing. And so rested doesn't mean that he relaxed. It doesn't mean that he was exhausted. It doesn't mean that God fell into inactivity. It doesn't mean that he decided to take a breather and put his feet up until the eighth day began. No, the work that he had done ceased. The work was finished. The rest was a rest of satisfaction. One writer puts it like this. He said it was a stamp of approval. And as soon as I saw those words, a stamp of approval, I immediately thought of what happens to a craftsman who makes something and gets a stamp of approval put on it. For instance, a silversmith. Now, I thought I would show you a piece of silver. We all know about this. The silver carrot cup that is awarded for the UK Open Golf Championship. A silversmith made it and finished it and is satisfied with it. And of all, of all of us who are enthusiasts of the Antiques Roadshow will know that every piece of silver has to have three stamps on it. It has a year stamp, a maker's stamp, and a quality stamp, which uh, specifies the quality of the silver. And when all this has happened, it is ready for use. And when God finishes on the sixth day and surveys what he has done on the seventh day, the cosmos, the creation, is ready for use. So whatever else the Ten Commandments command us, 
it does not it is not a command to be inactive on the seventh day or to withdraw from the world it does not mean on the seventh day you must sit around doing nothing and be absolutely bored out of your mind Jesus nailed this false teaching in the words that Judy was reading for us, the story from John's Gospel, when Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day. I too am working, he says. So rest means satisfaction at the work completed, a sense of completion in the book of Genesis. But there's another meaning to the word rest that's worth thinking about And it comes uh, from uh, a different word in the Hebrew, so my reference books tell me. That's where my soul knowledge of Hebrew comes from. It's the meaning of settling down, settling in. God ceased from six days' work and settled into the stability of the universe that he had made. Now, there's a passage in Isaiah which tells us all about this. This is what the Lord says. This is from Isaiah chapter 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord? In other words, my resting place, God is saying, is the cosmos, the universe I have created. Not any house or temple that you might build for me, but I reside in my cosmos here. I sit on my throne. Here I take up my rule. Let's show a resting place being built. This is... 29 Spottiswood Gardens, the resting place of Mike and Judy, uh, in the year 1967, believe it or not, when we came here. And the foundations are in, and the house is only just beginning. So uh, creation is described as occurring in six days. Ours took about eight months. And we... There is Judy admiring the place where she will one day be able to rest. And this is it being built. And gradually it comes together. And in the end, uh, once the builders have moved away all the piles of bricks and put some absolutely terrible pink chips down for getting in and out of the house, we were able to move in. And there we rested. This didn't mean that we did anything. We were very busy because we knew that our first son, baby Andrew, was on the way, so there was a lot to do at that time. But there we rested. I was just thinking about the way different parts of the world we talk about this. In England, we say, this is where I live. In Scotland, we say, this is where I stay. In the Old Testament, God says, this is where I rest. My resting place is the universe that I have made. And the people of Israel 
will be told in due course that Canaan, the promised land, will be a land for them, a place of rest, a place where they live, a place where they stay, a place in Old Testament terms where they will rest, where they will, where they will settle down. And so God blesses the second day and made it holy. And so the fourth commandment tells us that the Israelites, in fact, were to celebrate this day forever. Once again, we read in the book of Exodus, the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come. I've got a picture there of the words as a lasting covenant. And once again, Isaiah helps us to understand what is really going on. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy name honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way, then you will find your joy in the Lord. Pleasing yourself and going your own way means reverting to the things that correspond to the first six days. The seventh day is to be special in some way. So, in fact, what happened? When the Israelites got into the promised land, what happened? And I was, in my ignorance of the Old Testament, astonished to find that in many of those first historical books that describe the life of God's people in the promised land, the Sabbath isn't mentioned at all. You can go through the whole of Joshua, the whole of Judges, the whole of First Samuel, the whole of Second Samuel, the whole of the first book of Kings, and the Sabbath isn't mentioned once. So what's going on? What is mentioned time and time and time again is idolatry. It wasn't that the Jews worked on the Sabbath or anything like that. It was that they forgot and totally ignored those early commandments that we read in the Ten Commandments. The Lord God was not there, the only God that they worshipped. They worshipped the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Tyre and Sidon, fertility gods. They put up altars on high places. They erected Asherah poles to make sacrifices at them. Idolatry was rampant throughout Israel for most of those early years in the promised land. All the way through the kings, it occurred, books of kings, it occurred in one form or another. And it really only came to an end when in the end God drove his people out of their promised land, the land that was meant to be the rest for them, and drove them into exile. And in our recent evenings, uh, Bill Tuman has been telling us from the book of Ezekiel how some of these things worked out. And it really seems that this penalty of being turfed out of their place of rest for 50 or so years got rid of idolatry. And when they came back to the land, then you find the Sabbath being mentioned a tremendous amount, so much that the Sabbath seems to become a sort of cultural marker for them. What does it mean to be a faithful Jew? Well, there are two, main, two or three main things, of which one is they obey the Sabbath. And it goes on getting more and more strict 
with more and more regulations being piled on what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath day. The the culmination, in one sense, occurred about 150 years before uh, Jesus was born. It was a time when the Jews were being ruled by a particularly harsh tyrant king, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was a freedom fighter's revolt against this Greek king. And at one time, about a thousand of these freedom fighters were surrounded by their enemies. And because it was the Sabbath day, they refused to defend themselves. And they just stood still and allowed themselves to be slaughtered. Because to defend yourself on the Sabbath day would be breaking the fourth commandment and the rules got stricter and stricter as time passed and by the time of Jesus there were detailed laws mainly to do what constituted work on the Sabbath and what constituted carrying a burden and so the story that Judy read to us about the man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda Jesus was working on the Sabbath because he healed a man and the man was carrying a burden because he was carrying his mat home and this forbidden of this in particular it was this forbidding of healing that made Jesus particularly angry on one occasion a leader of the synagogue criticized Jesus because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the people, there are six days for work. Go away and come back on one of those six days and be healed. Don't be healed on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrite, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey and take it from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's been bound for 18 young years, be set free from the, on the Sabbath day from what bound her. And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the crowd loved it. And here we are now. 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, 3,500 years after the Ten Commandments were first given, approximately, And who knows how many years after the story of Genesis 1 first appeared? How should Christians worship? How should Christians behave? First of all, let's just note this. We worship together. There's no individualistic Christianity Somebody may say, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. I can worship God by walking along the West Sands at sunrise. Indeed, you can. But Christianity is a communal activity. We live together. We share together. We serve each other together. We support. We encourage each other together. There's a saying of a 4th century bishop, which I'm very fond of, a man called Bishop Basil who was very perturbed at all these young men who wanted to be very spiritual and wanted to to go out and live in the desert as hermits entirely on their own. And Bishop Basil said to them, if you do that, if you become a desert hermit, whose feet will you wash? It was a very telling remark. Christian life is a communal, a community activity. Second thing we can note is this. The day doesn't matter 
early Christians met on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came. And there's no rule you find in the Bible saying this is the way it ought to be done. It just sort of changed for Christians. It just sort of happened. And Paul makes this remark. He says one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Everybody should be fully convinced in their own minds that what they do is to the Lord. If you are in a, in a community of Messianic Jews who worship Jesus as Saviour and Lord, but you're living in a Jewish community, you will probably meet on Saturday. If you are in a Christian congregation in a Muslim country, you will very probably meet on Friday. A lot of this goes on in Bangladesh. And there is one Iranian congregation that meets regularly in Glasgow on a Thursday. The day doesn't matter. The place doesn't matter. Recall the story which Andrew was telling us about a few weeks ago about Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman by the well and how he asked her for a drink and what the way they talked after that. And the Samaritan woman says, uh, asks, should we worship God on this mountain or should we worship God in Jerusalem? And Jesus replies, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshippers the Father speaks. God is spirit. The worshippers must worship him in spirit and not in truth. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go to a temple to take part in worshipping God. Look at us. We meet in a school this morning. It's our state of mind that counts, not where we are. But what are we actually supposed to do? Well, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And if that was true for Jesus, it's also true for us Christians. No activity is specifically forbidden or frowned upon. One comment that I found particularly helpful, which I'm trying to bring up, one comment that I found particularly helpful was, on the day we worship, press the reset button. Disconnect your mind from the affairs of the past six days the week of work and the week of study reset our minds on God himself God our creator our sustainer our redeemer and ourselves as his people living for him rather than for ourselves whom we know full well we tend to forget on the other six days of the week now, such is the pattern of life we live these days that it's very difficult for some families. Dad is on shifts at the factory. Mum is on nights at the care home. And the son is out delivering pizzas at all sorts of odd hours. Maybe you've seen 
the son going around with a square sort of box on his back, carrying pizzas from one place to another. In fact, we call it now the gig economy, and I had a comment from a friend saying you must be very careful to explain what the gig economy is. Wigwam, the fastest and most efficient way of hiring workers to work for just a few hours at a time using the web, using the internet, and using smartphones and all sorts of other modern techniques. And they're around in St. Andrews. There's a Hermes Center in one place. Uber has not yet come to St. Andrews yet, but we've heard about all the trouble that Uber, the taxi firm, is having down in London. And there is somebody from Deliveroo with a square box on his back uh, taking uh, an evening meal to somebody or other. In fact, what is happening now is that employment patterns are now becoming so fragmented that one wonders whenever a family can gather together to meet, let alone to, to eat, let alone to meet somewhere for a time of worship. What can be done? And this is really a challenge for the future Not so much for this church where in the town of St. Andrews we tend to run to a uh, a sort of academic timetable and the week tends to center around life in the university for a lot of the time. But if, say, you are a Baptist church uh, near Grangemouth with the oil refinery or you're at the Baptist church in Sunderland where there is the most, uh, in the Nissan factory, the most efficient car factory in the whole of Europe, all working on uh, short time, uh, all working on um, shift patterns of one sort or another. Churches have to learn to adapt, to provide people with opportunities to press that reset button, which we will try to do in just a few moments, perhaps just a short period of time. And I close with a quote from the Preacher Stuart Briscoe, Lord, I'm taking this time as a gift from you. And I'm going to use it responsibly. When it's over, I'll present it to you and say, Lord, this was your day, your time, and this is what I did with it.